Well, before I begin my message this morning, I did want to uh, encourage you all. If I can find it here. Here it is. We received a, um, uh, a Christmas card. It's addressed to Rock Valley Bible Church. I figure I'd read it for you all. It's from Robert and Donna Pell, who actually are, are people who live in Pascagoula, Mississippi. And uh, they've been the recipients of some of the labor from some of the men in this church. And they gave us the flowers here. And they wrote this, To Rock Valley Bible Church, Merry Christmas to each one in this church family. Dear church family, thank you very much for loving us after the Katrina massive storm. The four men you sent to our home in Pascagoula, Mississippi are wonderful Christian men. They spent a full week with us installing sheetrock in our house. At the end of each workday, they would discuss God's love and lead us in prayers. Signed, Robert and Donna Pell, with an asterisk. We will never forget Doug, Stan, Mike, and Nick. And uh, I was uh, sharing with our group that gathered for prayer this morning just how, how easy it is to serve someone like this, Right? Appreciative, thankful, sending flowers, and just you know that they genuinely appreciate uh, the work and the labor. And I thank you, church body, for being supportive of allowing us to send men down there. And for the men who went just to, to labor away and to help these people who've been hit by a disaster and to help labor among them. So that's to you from them, and I wanted to extend that to you. Well, this morning... This Christmas morning, I would like to take up the topic of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Walt Kaiser says, in expository preaching, with respect to that, he says, your pattern of preaching ought to be expository. You can preach a topical sermon once every several years as long as you repent immediately afterwards, is what he said. And uh, I guess I will repent later, but this is a totally topical sermon about the virgin birth of Christ. In fact, this next year, there won't be any sermon that will be topical. We're going to be going straight through the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3 next week. And every verse passage has been assigned for us with that measure. But today is a topical sermon on the virgin birth. And I say, indeed, the virgin birth is the core and is the crux of the Christmas story. The virgin birth is the means through which God stepped into time to save His people from their sins. Now, for some of you children who may be here, virgin birth, what is the virgin birth? Let me just put it this way for you children. The virgin birth simply means that a baby was born with no earthly father. That's what it means. Jesus was born with no earthly father. God was His Father. And the Bible clearly states that Jesus had no earthly father. Rather, His conception was a direct act of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin named Mary. The event was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, some 700 years before it actually took place. In Matthew chapter 1, in Luke chapter 1, the story of the conception is explained. And there are a few other passages in the Bible that allude to the virgin birth. Not a lot, but enough for us to believe it. But sadly, though the Bible teaches the virgin birth, it hasn't kept the world from doubting it. There are many liberal theologians who would doubt the virgin birth. 
There are many theologians who seek to place the importance away from the manner of the birth of Christ to the, the fact of His birth. They say, you know, it's not necessary for you to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. What you need to believe is that Jesus was born. And I believe that such an attitude is a big mistake because it leads to bigger things down the road. It, it, it's, it's the crack that will be wedged open because should you deny the virgin birth, you will deny the supernatural character of the life of Christ right from the start. And if you deny the supernatural character of the life of Christ from the start, how easy will it be to deny His miracles? And how easy will it be to deny His resurrection? And without a resurrection, we have no hope. And I think it can come back to denying the virgin birth. Also, another crack. If you deny the virgin birth, you deny the clear teaching of the Bible. For though the evidence is scant, only in a few verses, I would say this, that only a few verses is sufficient for us to believe it. And should you deny the clear teaching of the Bible, you pave the way to deny other doctrines taught in the Bible as well. And so I say the virgin birth is important and that's why I want to devote this Sunday morning, this Christmas morning to the question, why the virgin birth? Why the virgin birth? This morning I want to give you several reasons. In fact, I have six reasons there on your outline of why the virgin birth. And my aim is really simple this morning. My message this morning isn't a strong, exhortative message. My message the past oh, month and a half or so have been really strong, exhortation-wise. This message is not like that. This message is to lift up Christ and how He came in a virgin birth and cause us to wonder and marvel at Jesus. You know, the story is told in Luke chapter 2 about how after Mary gave birth to Jesus, some shepherds visited her and told them of the angelic vision that they had seen, which caused them to see this, come and see this wonderful child. As they told this story to, to Mary, Mary says, treasure these things up in her heart, pondering them in her heart. And that's what I want you to do this morning. As I give to you reasons why it is that the virgin birth had to take place, I want you to treasure it up in your heart and, and cause to be more marvel at Jesus Christ than you've ever had before. Now, I would admit that this is difficult. I, I feel like this week, as I was a, an amateur astronomer looking through the Hubble telescope, you know, or looking through some big telescope. Here I am, I have undiscerning eyes, and I'm looking out and I say, oh, there's the moon. You know, but there's so much more even beyond that. Just the, the teachings and the implication of the virgin birth are much and many and deep-rooted in much of Scripture. This virgin birth is indeed the beginning of a miraculous life that has affected all of us. So, why the virgin birth? My first reason here. It was prophesied. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. From of old, the Lord told His people that there would be a day in which the virgin would be with child and bear a son. This was always the plan of God. He was simply waiting for the right time to come. And in the first century, the right time came. He brought forth a son born of a virgin. And the story is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, which I want to read, but I want to focus my point on verse 22. Let's look at Matthew 1.18. It says this. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. 
And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For it is He who will save His people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Once you focus there in verse 22, we see a clear statement and a purpose of why the virgin birth took place, right? Now all this took place that. You might read so that. You might read with the purpose that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. And the idea you get in this verse is that the prophecy of Isaiah was driving history. I want you to think about making a film. I don't know much about making a film, but I do know a few things. I know that before any film ever comes to pass, the idea first is conceived in the mind of a, of a movie writer. And he begins to write out a script on paper and describing the events that take place and the people being involved and the conversations that we'll have. But once he's done with his script, he hands it over to the director. And the director's job is to see fit that the events of the film are so orchestrated that the script comes onto the film as the script designed it to be. In fact, you can even say that the director will do certain things so that the script is captured on the movie film. And that's almost the idea here with the virgin birth. Declaring the end from the beginning, God wrote the script of the history of the world. And one of the events in the history of the world was this, that there would be a virgin birth. A woman who had never sexually known a man would become pregnant and would give birth to a son. And of course, we know that this happened. In fact, Matthew is clear to, to say that Joseph kept Mary as a virgin. Look there in verse 25. And he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Why the virgin birth? It was prophesied. Second reason, why the virgin birth? Because it put God with us. It put God with us. And I get this from verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. See, the prophecy of virgin giving birth goes beyond the mere birth of a child. It goes and speaks about the character of this child. This child that would be born of a virgin would be God Himself. I told you last week, but the word Emmanuel is a concatenation of three Hebrew words. And the Hebrew language does that a lot. Like the first, very first word in the, in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, is Beroshit. Bat means in, with, or by. Right? It means in. Roshit means beginning, top, chief, first. Beroshit is one word, in the beginning. And so also here, e Im anu el. Im means with. Anu is a suffix that means us. El is God, like Elohim, El Gabor, the Mighty One. With us, God. 
That's what Emmanuel means. In fact, even Matthew translates that for his readers. Maybe you didn't know Greek or didn't know Hebrew. They knew Greek because he was writing Greek, but they didn't know Hebrew. And so he said, Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That was the purpose of the virgin birth, to put God with us. Now, now certainly, if you think about this, and here's where I want to step back, I want to think about the virgin birth. Certainly, God is able and was able to be with us without the virgin birth. Was He not? Can you think of instances in which God was with man before the virgin birth? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve walked with the Lord God in the garden. I think there was some corporeal bodily sense where the Lord was walking with them. At times we know that the angel of the Lord came and walked and talked with those upon the earth. And there are times the angel of the Lord is equated to the Lord. In Judges 13, Manoah and his wife encountered the angel of the Lord and they said, we have seen the Lord. And there are several of these, right? Appearances of God upon the earth in the Old Testament. But you know, the virgin birth brought God to be with us in a far different way than He'd ever been before. The virgin birth allowed for Emmanuel, God to be with us in the flesh which is my third point this morning. The reason for the virgin birth is because it gave God flesh. See, when God walked with Adam or spoke with Moses or appeared to Manoah, it wasn't as if God became one of them. God was still separated from them and apart from them in very real ways. But in the incarnation, God took on flesh and dwelt among us. The passage of Scripture that ought to come to your mind was the one that Dan Scott read for us in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says this, The Word became flesh. Right? In chapter 1, verse 1, it's the Word was with God, the Word was God. Right? That's God becoming flesh. And here it says, it says He dwelt among us. The idea here is that, that, that Jesus came and brought His tent along with Him. And... He tented among us and He slept with us and He lived with us and He spoke with us and He ate with us. And it was the virgin birth that brought it about, gave Jesus flesh. It was the virgin birth that brought the God-man. Jesus was fully human in that He was born of a woman, allowed Him to dwell with us. But Jesus was also fully God in that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And this is what allowed God to dwell with us. In His essence, Jesus was God. Now, don't confuse this. It's not that Jesus was half man and half God to come together. 50%, 50% comes together. 100%. The math doesn't work like that. It's Jesus was fully man and fully God coming together in one person yet having two natures. That's how the early church described it in the creeds. One person with two natures, God and man. And it was the virgin birth that brought it about. Allowed the God-man to come into existence. And really, the significance of Jesus putting on flesh and blood through the virgin birth comes about in my fourth point this morning. is that The virgin birth put God under the law. And this is perhaps even one of the most important points of all of my points. It put God under the law. The law giver becomes subjected to the law himself. Turn over to Galatians chapter 4. I want to look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And these verses tell us 
what the birth of Jesus did for him. Namely, namely it put him under the law. Right? Galatians 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, right? Prophecy of a virgin birth, Isaiah 7.14, coming 700 years, the fullness of time. It was the time. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, the significance of these words is simply to say that Jesus was born just like all of us. Having been born of a Jewish woman in Israel, Jesus was then subjected under the law. As a Jewish boy, He faced all the requirements, all the blessings and all the cursings that would come from the law. He was required to keep all the commandments and He'd be cursed for any disobedience to the law. Jesus was not only like us biologically with flesh and blood, but catch this, He was also like us socially as well. In this case, what I mean socially is He's, he's one of us. He is under the law like we were. <clears throat> Now, you can easily argue that God could have come into the flesh apart from the virgin birth. He could have. And when God made Adam, He made him from the dust of the ground. When God made Eve, He made, him, made her from the side of Adam. They were fully flesh. He could have done that. God could have come into the world by an act of special creation. But should God have come into the world as Adam and Eve came into the world, you see, there always would have been this question whether Jesus actually shared our flesh and blood. Or is He something different? Not angel, not man, but flesh. Is He something different? But being born of a woman puts Him under the law in the same flesh and blood that we have. Oh, He may have looked the same. He may have spoken like we do. But still in our minds, there would have been this thought, Right? Well, his life, maybe he's under a different jurisdiction than ours. Maybe he's under different rules. I mean, he wasn't born like all of us. But see, even look in verse 5 of Galatians 5. It was so important that God would come through a woman in order that, verse 5, he might redeem those who were under the law. In order to redeem those in the law, he had to come in under the law. I mean, this is why no angel could ever redeem us from our sin. This is why the Jehovah Witnesses have it all wrong. They have Jesus being an angel. No angel can redeem us. We needed one to come in our likeness. We needed God to redeem us by taking on His own flesh. Right? We needed one who was in the same predicament as we were, under the law, to come and save us. Which is exactly what Jesus did. And this, by the way, is no minor point. It was important for Jesus to take on flesh and blood. It established Him as one of us. And as one under the law, Jesus was then enabled to lead us out of the bondage of the law. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, Since the children, that is us, share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. Talking about the Incarnation. Jesus coming to be flesh and blood. That through death, His death on the cross, He might render powerless Him who had, po had the power of death, that is, the devil. He became flesh and blood 
to be just like us, so that through His death and subsequent resurrection, He could free us from the one who had the power of the death, which is Satan himself. Becoming like us, He could redeem us from the power of death. And we know from other Scripture passages that He redeems us by faith as we trust in Him. Why the virgin birth? It gave God flesh. It put God under law. It kept God... I'm sorry. Yeah, put God under law. Here's my fifth point. It kept God free from sin. Now, this point's debated by the theologians. Getting maybe philosophical here a little bit. But I think it's clear. I think it's true. It kept God free from sin. Turn over to Luke chapter 1. This passage is much like Matthew chapter 1 and it tells of the angelic visit of an angel, this time not to Joseph, but to Mary, to explain what's going to take place inside Mary's womb, namely that she's going to give birth while still a virgin. And again, I want to read the whole context for us to set the Christmas stage, but I'm going to focus this time on verse 35 because I think that gives us a hint and a clue about how the virgin birth kept Christ free from sin. Luke 1, verse 26. Now, it had been revealed... Uh, yeah, I'm in Luke 2. Luke 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, an angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over his house, over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. I want you to notice right there in verse 35 how Jesus is described. He's described as the holy offspring. And I take this to mean that in His conception, Jesus was sinless. It's called a holy conception. Now, the only way that Jesus could be sinless in His conception was through the virgin birth. Had Jesus been conceived through normal processes, He would have been a sinful being. That is the testimony of Scripture. I mean, David said of his own conception, in sin my mother conceived me. It wasn't that David's mother committed a sinful act in his conception. It was that David was conceived into the realm of sin. Into sin. Into this sinful world. As one who is a sinner, I was conceived. Because every child ever conceived of human parents is conceived a sinner. You can trace all the way back to Adam. When Adam fell, he plunged into sin, not only himself, but he brought all the rest of humanity into his sin. You can read about that in Romans 5. It's the clearest day. We are guilty from our conception because we are a son of Adam. 
It says that through one transgression of Adam, Romans 5.18, condemnation to all men is result. So what's the only way to escape being defiled by human conception? It is by the virgin birth. The child born won't inherit Adam's sin. And in Luke 1.35, we read that Jesus was conceived as a holy child. And even the emphasis there is, look, look, the Holy Spirit's going to do this. Verse 35, it's God. The Holy Spirit with power is going to come upon you, Mary. Conceive within you a child that's going to be a holy offspring. Now, theologians will say, well, it didn't have to be that way. And they can argue that. But I believe the virgin birth was the only way to keep a human being away from sin of Adam while still being born a woman born under the law. Why the virgin birth? It was prophesied. It put God with us. It gave God flesh. It put God under the law. It kept God from sin. And finally, so my sermon is a little bit shorter today than normal, it shows us that salvation is all of grace. I get this from verse 28 and verse 30. Look at verse 28. The angel comes on the scene and speaks to Mary and says, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. It says in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have here it is, found favor with God. In both these instances, the word translated favor comes from the Greek word charis, which is often translated grace, which means grace. We named our first daughter Carissa. Carissa Grace. Grace, grace. That's the word. You could easily translate verse 28. The Lord said to her, Hail, graced one. Hail the one having received grace. Mary is lifted up and honored, not because she's good, but because God graced her. You can easily translate verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found grace with God. God has graced you. Now, now I want you to think back, step back a little bit about this. The fact that God would choose Mary to bring forth Jesus is all an act of God's grace. It's even said here right from the beginning, but really it goes further than that. Think about the entire process of God coming into the flesh. Whose initiative was it? Was it Mary's? Was it Joseph's? It was God's initiative that brought Him to be with us. Mary and Joseph couldn't have accomplished it, even if they would have tried. Now, the virgin birth teaches us that God breaks into history to come as a sinless God-man to redeem those under the curse of the law. Salvation is God's doing. Salvation is all of grace. It's all God initiating, bringing the process to man. And so, as you think of the birth of Christ today, listen, you need to realize that even the fact that He came to be among us is a demonstration of God's grace. It's His initiative. It's His doing. And it is the message of Christmas. God has broken into history and come to be with us so He might save His people from their sins. You know, one of the ways He does that, I was handed this. My, my dad handed me this envelope here before the service. He said, you might use this as sermon illustration someday. I'm desperate. I'm going to use it today. It was from uh, the Daily Chronicle in uh, Friday, December 23rd, 2005. It says, Jury finds Spates guilty of murder. 
Here's a man. His name is Willie Spates. The testimony came out that he never denied shooting his wife on April 22, 2002 in the upstairs bathroom of his sister's Garden Street apartment in DeKalb. A weapons expert testified that 10 of the 11 bullets found at the scene of Anita Spates' body have all been fired from Spates' Tech 9 semi-automatic gun. The expert could not tell if one bullet was shot from Spates' gun because of the markings, but he said it did, it did have the same shape and appearance as all the others. And the story even goes on to speak just about you know, the murder and just how she is from South Africa and you know, the testimony that was received there. And Spates was basically, if ever there was a slam dunk murder case, it was this case. Spates didn't have a lawyer. He self-represented himself. And uh, he gave his final closing testimony two hours. Listen to what he said. He said this. He said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, please, please find me not guilty of the crimes that I've committed. That's what he said. Look, you're right on the front. Defendant makes plea in closing. Please find me not guilty of the crimes I have committed. You know what? That's us. That is us. And when you stand before God, you claim the same thing that Willie Spates claimed. And I would say that the evidence of your sin before God is a lot more obvious to God than even Willie Spates' murder conviction is to us. God sees the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He knows every transgression of the law we've ever committed. And we're Willie Spates. We know that we are dead and consumed and dying. But we plead with God. And we say, God, please find me not guilty of the crimes I've committed. And do you know what God miraculously does? He finds us not guilty. Now, it's not that injustice is served. Because suppose the, the jury found him to be not guilty, what would we say? We would cry out and say, injustice, unfair, fire the judge. Boy, let's go after those jurists. That was wrong. And when God does that, we ought to say the same thing. God is one who is perfectly just. If anybody's going to be fair, it's going to be God. But how does He do it? He does it through grace in His Son. Because Jesus Christ took the penalty, took the place for those who believe. And in that way, we can plead before God, please find me guilty of the things that I have done, the crimes that I have committed against you. And I would say also, dear people, the crimes you commit against God are far worse than what He committed against His wife. You think murder is bad, and indeed murder is bad, but sin against an infinitely pure God is a lot worse than that. You might not believe it, but it is. Because you're blaspheming the highest holy one. Right? That's why a murder of a president is, is worse than the murder of a wife in some sense. Okay? I'm just trying to show you the difference there between sin against an infinitely holy God is far worse. We're in far worse condition than Willie Spates is. But through faith in Christ, the good news is that by His grace He'll forgive us. Why? Because God has laid upon Him the sins of those who believe. He's laid upon Him our sins. Right? And in that way, God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the message of the Gospel. That is what 
Romans chapter 3 says, that though He overlooked the sins previously committed, it was in Christ that He punished Him in our place. He's just and the justifier of the one whose faith in Christ. And so, I, do you have faith in Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Have you embraced this virgin-born child as your only hope? Do you say, God, please find me guilty of the crimes I've done because of Jesus, because of His cross, and I believe and I trust in Him. And you know what? I say this, that Christ is your only hope. This Christmas season, we think about Jesus being born and coming into flesh. He's our only hope in this world. Our only hope is that Jesus would come. You know, I, I do have a seventh reason. I was, I was not going to do this. Look, one, one last thing. Let's go back to Genesis 3. I just, can't, I just can't not share this because this is Jesus is our only hope. This is the virgin birth. Genesis 3.15, we'll, we'll expand more on this next week. Right now, we'll just touch on it. Here's the seventh reason. You can add it to your notes. Kids, bear with me a little bit longer. It allowed the woman to have a seed. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent, cursing the serpent because of his deceptive work. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here it is. The fall of man, the only hope we have is in Christ. The only hope we have is that one to come and redeem. Only to come to, to crush the Satan. And this is the first promise of the Gospel. It's that God would send someone to crush Satan on the head, even though Satan would bruise him on the heel. That's talking about the cross of Christ. But I want you to see, even how here in this verse, the virgin birth has an illusion. And why do I say that? It's because it speaks about the seed of the woman. You know, you go through all the Scriptures. Who has the seed? It's always the man who has the seed. It's always the man who has the seed. And then here it's talking about a woman having a seed. How can a woman have a seed? I think the virgin birth is what makes it clear. The virgin birth allows the woman then to have the seed. And that's how this deliverer came up. Though Satan bruised him on the heel, he bruised him on the head. It says in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, that he crushed Satan under his feet. And that's your only hope, is Christ who was born of a virgin. Do you trust Him? Are you one of His people? Let's pray. Lord, I do pray this Christmas morning that we would reflect and marvel upon the, the seed that came. It was Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those who were under the curse of the law. I pray that You would show us all how guilty and vile and helpless we are just like this man, Willie Spates. God, but yet, miraculously, we can plead that You find us not guilty and You do through faith in Christ. What wonderful news that is. And I pray that we would go forth from this place trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. In whose name we pray. Amen.